Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 248, Finance Friday edition, where we interview Louise and talk about saving up for that next big expense. I would like to be work optional by 40. So I've got a little over a decade to accomplish that. And I'm trying to figure out how to prioritize this new income coming in so that I can accomplish all of those things and sort of in what order I should prioritize them. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me, as always, is my smart cookie co-host, Scott Trench. Oh, we're always baking up some new intros, Mindy. Thank oh, you. You're full of nuts. Come on. What a, what a sweet introduction. Oh, oh. <laughs> Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else. To introduce you to every money story, because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right. Whether you want to retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate, start your own business, do all of the above and have a um, pretty high end wedding, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so you can launch yourself towards those dreams. I'm so excited to talk to Louise today because she is kind of indicative of several recent guests that we've had where she thinks she's here, but she's actually kind of up here and she thinks she needs, to, it's going to take longer to save for what she needs or it's going, she's going to need to save more money than what she actually needs. And I think that we are very helpful today, giving her a different way to look at where she's at financially and where she's going. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's a uh, a pattern that maybe um, a couple of guests and maybe maybe many listeners are having where they're too conservative in their forecast. And you don't you don't you want to be conservative. You never want to run out of money. It's unacceptable to to go broke, um, uh, especially if you listen to Bigger Pockets Money for for a long period of time. But to not acknowledge the rea- the likelihood of the the middle outcome um, being at a certain level. I think is also a huge mistake in, in your planning. It can cost you hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars with that. So having a, co- a strong financial foundation, a big cushion, um, thinking about your real estate investments in terms of cash flow and having appropriate reserves or that kind of stuff, having retirement accounts, um, all, all, all that stuff is is great, but you don't also then need to stockpile fifty, hundred thousand dollars in cash to pay for certain other items with that. You can you can you can reach into that and use that investment portfolio to to draw on that from time to time if absolutely necessary downstream with that. So we don't want to push people to in an unreasonably aggressive place, but I think there's also that level of conservatism that can hurt you. Um, and I think that's where we went today and 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 learned a lot. Um, she's doing fantastic and it's just hard to pop out and think, oh, I'm actually doing fantastic. I can afford to play a little bit more to win. Maybe what I've been yeah, doing. It can be a little bit difficult to switch your mindset when your mindset is like so focused here and you're like, well, you're not doing a 180, but you might be doing, you know, a 120, a 130. You might need to shift it a little bit more. So yeah, it, and it can be hard. So uh, before we bring in Louise to share her story, let's hear a note from today's show sponsor. Okay, huge thanks to the sponsor of today's show. Now my attorney makes me say the contents of this podcast are informational in nature and are not legal or tax advice, and neither Scott nor I nor Bigger Pockets is engaged in the provision of legal, tax, or any other advice. You should seek your own advice from professional advisors, including lawyers and accountants, regarding the legal, tax, and financial implications of any financial decision you contemplate. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. 
It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. The easiest way to collect rent? RentApp. RentApp is a seamless, secure, free payment tool for small rental property owners like you and me. Built by a team of fintech veterans behind Square and Cash App, RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit rent directly into your account. Landlords love RentApp for its unbeatable convenience. Isn't it time you made rent collection easier? RentApp, the free and easy way to collect rent. Learn more at rent.app slash landlord. That's rent.app slash landlord. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies, and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Take control of your investments and secure a stable 8% annual return today. Visit pinefinancialgroup.com biggerpockets to learn more about the fund. That's pinefinancialgroup.com biggerpockets. Louise lives in a high cost of living city with her partner and is saving for her upcoming big expenses, engagement rings, wedding celebration, and a primary residence. She's on the path to financial independence, but looking for a little bit of guidance. Louise, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm excited. I am excited too, because I think you are sitting in a fairly good position, but let's look at exactly how good that position is. Where is your money coming in and where's it going? So um, I recently switched jobs. I took advantage of this uh, labor market and uh, sold my skills to get a big pay increase. So I'm kind of um, looking at a lot more cash each month than I had been, which I think will be helpful uh, to get your input on how I should prioritize using that cash. Um, So Annually, uh, my primary income comes from my nine to five job. Um, I bring in 120,000 annually, uh, which breaks down to about, after everything's taken out, 4,500 take home for me to play with. And that's including um, maxing out my Roth and everything. Uh, And then I have a bonus that's up to 20%. I haven't gotten a clear sense on, you know, how, sure thing that is. So I'm just kind of 
banking on that being a nice surprise and can utilize that for anything at the end of the year um, when that comes in. So uh, yeah, looking at $120,000 annually to play around with, which is a lot more than I had been. So your help will be greatly appreciated. Well, send the extra to me. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, what no, was it there's before? There's no such thing as extra money. Uh, before it was around 75. That's a huge increase. Okay. So you got a $50,000 raise um, by switching yes. jobs. Okay. Yep. Let's just pause for a moment and say, congratulations, Louise. That was an <laughs> awesome move. Um, is it in the same field? Yep. Same field, just sort of working in a... So I went from public to private. So doing the same thing, but just for a different company. And um, it's been working out really well so far. There was no, you know, change to the skills I needed and I was able to start right away. So I've been enjoying it uh, so far. Good for you. Congratulations. That's yeah, an awesome move. Congrats. That's awesome. And I Thank like you. the way that you're thinking about the bonus. I'm not quite sure what the bonus is going to be. So I'm just going to consider it as extra. Great. First of all, it's not extra. It will always have a job, but don't count on it and don't make your budget based on a bonus that may or may not happen. I love that. Um, okay. Is there any additional income besides the salary and this ethereal bonus? So I do have two rental properties. Um, they are, I don't necessarily consider that income because anything that I'm getting, it just kind of stays within the rental property at the moment. I bought both of them within the last year or two, which is also why I have no cash at the moment um, and need to save up more. But so they're kind of busy working to stabilize themselves at the moment. So I don't necessarily consider that income uh, personally. What, what are the, what are these? Can you, can you describe these assets? Uh, so they're both single family homes. Um, I'm from the Midwest. And so it was kind of a nice way to get in. I knew I wanted to get into rentals, but my family is all um, in a, you know, semi up and coming Midwest city. And so I was able to get into that kind of market right before and slightly during the pandemic before things got a little crazy. Um, but they're both cash flowing really well. The ones bringing in uh, $250 a month over uh, the you know capex and um, mortgage and everything. The other one's bringing in four fifty over. So I would love your help on that as well. I have a few rental property questions for you um, later or now, if if that makes sense. Great. Well, let's let's circle back to those. Um, okay. That's interesting. Um, with that, and what are your expenses for your personal life? So um, I've been listening to bigger pockets for quite some time and I know that Mindy is big on tracking expenses so partly in preparation for this conversation I started tracking my expenses um, about eight months ago so I actually have some concrete <laughs> metrics for you guys um, my so my girlfriend and I split most things down the middle so a lot of these expenses are sort of 50 percent of you know the total household but my rent is fifteen hundred. Um, remember, high cost of living city, very high cost. Uh, groceries end up being about two hundred a month. Utilities about one fifty. Eating out is closer to three fifty. Um, travel averages to two fifty a month. We have a dog, so he's about one fifty a month. Um, and then sort of everything else, oh, my car, which recently has been giving me a lot of trouble this past year, has 
average to $400 a month and I don't have a car payment. So that's been a, a trip, but I'm not about to buy a car in this market either. So, um, yeah. And then everything else is like about $150 miscellaneous stuff each month. Okay. So what is that total up to for those who are not as easy? Can't do that in their head. Yes. So total expenses a month I'm tracking to be about 3000 to 3500 Okay, great. And then um, walk me through your take-home pay again. At 120000 4500 a month seems really, really light um, on that. So um, the paycheck starts out around 4600 It's biweekly. Um, so I'll, I guess I'll switch to monthly. The paycheck monthly ends up being around $9,000, um, $9,250. Then after uh, insurance, that drops down by about 100 And I'm new to the HSA, but I'm maxing that out, which I think is 280 a month is maxing it out. Um, and then I'm currently maxing out my Roth 401k, uh, which I have some questions on, and that's fifteen hundred a month to max it out. So, how, what's hitting your bank account at the end of the at the end of the the, the day? Uh, it doesn't have to be exact; it can be just close, like a like a, 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 a rounding. So, what hits my bank account is the forty five hundred in in total. So, we have ninety two in total for the month. Okay, uh, and how long have you been receiving these new paychecks? Is this job relatively new? Yeah, just a couple months. Okay. Interesting. I'd still expect there to be more income hitting your bank account um, than that based on those numbers, but we can dive into that um, okay. uh, going forward there. Okay. And then what are your assets and liabilities here? So assets, I've got a 401k, which has about 70000 in it, a Roth IRA, which has about 20000 in it. Um, a regular IRA, which is kind of floating around from a previous pension that I didn't stick around for, that has about 5K in it. Uh, the HSA, which I just started, has like 600. Um, I have a small couple thousand in crypto. And then um, my emergency fund is 10K at the moment, which I'm trying to build up. Awesome. And then what um, debts and other, it sounds like you have the two rental properties on top of that. Um, and what yeah. what debts do you have? So I have about 4,500 left in student loans. Um, and then on the rental property side, uh, my my one rental is worth about 55,000 and I'm, I owe 40 on it. And the other rental is worth about 95,000 and I owe 55 on it. Uh, and kind of rolling together in my head, I have a personal loan out that paid for a lot of the renovations on that second rental property for 15000 So it, my calculations are, uh, my net worth right now is about one forty. Awesome. Um, well, great. You're doing, you're doing a lot of really cool stuff here and things are going, going your way. It seems like this year in particular, for the most part, except the car, uh, with, with, with yeah, all. Yes. um, what's the best way we can help you? So as Mindy mentioned, I'm kind of, I'm looking at a larger paycheck than I have had before. Um, and that I was really expecting to have. Um, but I'm also staring down 
within three to five years needing about probably 75 to $100,000 in cash uh, because my girlfriend and I are talking about getting married. Um, and also we would like to eventually buy a house. So rolled into that large sum is both, you know, two engagement rings, you know, two dresses, kind of wedding, and then um, a house likely in a high cost of living city. Um, looking a little bit further out from that, I would like to be work optional by 40. So I've got a little over a decade to accomplish that. And I'm trying to figure out how to prioritize this new income coming in so that I can accomplish all of those things and sort of in what order I should prioritize them. Okay, great. And and it looks to me like real estate is where you're lean based on your current financial position, but what what do you what is your what are your instincts or thoughts on how you want to approach it? Yes. So my thought is I would like to be coast fi in my retirement accounts by 40. And then actual FI on top of that via rental income by 40. So that regardless if one or the other crashes, the real estate market or the stock market, I'll be okay eventually. All right. So we got a great, we got a great challenge here. It's how do we come up with $100,000 in cash inside of three years? How do we put ourselves way along the trajectory on the real estate portfolio and have our cake and put in the money into the stock market with that? Yes, right? I want all the things. <laughs> you want all the things. All right, perfect. Um, so five five by forty with the caveat that we're going to carve out a hundred k, and then ideally with with both of those things, and that's twelve years from now. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Well, I, it's an ambitious goal, but it's a very clear goal, so I like it. You know what you want with that. <laughs> um, let's let's dive into so so here's here's your. Here's the, uh, let's just think about the real estate side in isolation and, 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 you know, as one goal and say, pretend that we're going just after that. My, my biggest problem with, with, you know, first of all, you need 3,300 a month to live, right? Yes. So, so that means you need 3,300 a month in cash flow from your rental properties uh, in order to uh, um, achieve that. If, Right now, you're saving $1,000 per month after tax that can be used to invest in those properties, right? Right. So the only way that, you know, so, so that means, and, and, and these properties are going to cost, I don't know, like a hundred grand. Is that, is that, what do you think like the, the properties are going to cost going forward? With this? Yeah, that's probably what the market is in the area I'm looking at now. Okay. And what's a property's cash flow going to produce um, on that? Do you think 450 or 400 is, is, like you've been getting is, is likely? Yes, I think I could keep getting that. Okay, so you need 10 such properties and each property you have to put down 15 to 25%. So that means you have to put down 15 to 25 grand per property uh, and you need 10 of those. Right. Okay, that actually doesn't seem as big of a challenge as I initially thought. It seems like, <laughs> okay, like that you're on your current savings rate, it would be great if you could pull another thousand into that savings profile and then you're buying essentially one per year without dipping into your existing $10,000 emergency reserve. But that mm. that puts you on track if you think you can actually get the $400 per month um, with this. So maybe I'm overthinking this. Um, but yeah, that actually seems... Okay, that one seems relatively achievable inside of 12 years. The timeline is so long that that's what makes that that's what makes that achievable. A decade is a long time to produce the 
$3,300 in cash flow on your income, which is why I think it's going to be easy, relatively easy for you just by following a pretty formulaic approach with that if you can operationalize and systematize those systems. Mindy, do you okay. have any observations or thoughts on that? Well, my first thought is, are you combining finances with your girlfriend once you get married? Because we didn't talk about that. You mentioned that this is your income, but we didn't talk about her income. So I'm assuming that there is some opportunity for additional cash generation if you're planning on combining finances. So we, that's actually something I would like your uh opinions on as well. But so we haven't, we've talked about it a little bit. She's not super into the finance as I am, um, which is funny because she's very good with her money. You know, it's, I feel like I've been like so focused on my tracking my expenses and money and everything. And like every month we come out with the same amount of money. Like I put all this (laughs) work into this and she just sort of lays back and it happens for her anyways. She is following along on your coattails. You're pulling (laughs) her along because you're not going out to fancy dinners and thousand dollar a night bar tabs. She also isn't. So she is just, uh, what's that called? Drifting when you like somebody pulls you along or the car pulls you along, you're pulling her along with you. So it's sinking in little by little. Yeah. Yeah, she's definitely a good a good partner to have in the journey, um, whether she realizes she's a partner or not. But um, so she's not the the idea of rental properties makes her a little nervous. Um, so I haven't necessarily convinced her yet to get uh, in on that with me. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily bank on her uh, income padding at least that element of the our journey. Okay, that's valid. Um, I would encourage you before you get married, probably before you get engaged, to talk about finances. Uh, Scott and I did an episode, episode 157. We talked about sitting down with your partner and discussing all your finances. What are your goals? Where do you see your money going? What sort of investments do you want to make? Um, And since you are the one who is more focused on finances, you are going to have to lead the conversation. But the conversation works best when it isn't, how are you going to stop spending money? It's more, (laughs) how can we work together to solidify our financial future? Right. I would like us to be more aligned in our finances. So let's talk about, you know, what are your goals? What do you want? It's all about her in the beginning of the conversation. And then mm-hmm. as she sees the possibilities, because I mean, if she's not coming at this from a place of financial independence or even knowing about financial independence, um, you retire at 65. Maybe yeah. if you're going to retire early at 62. So for you to say, hey, we can do it at 40, oh, that's not possible, is going to be the first response almost across the board. So for you to say, hey, we can do it at 40, here's how, if we start investing in real estate properties, if we start start investing in the stock market, if we're doing all of these things, you can see time and again, past performance is not indicative of future gains, but past performance kind of is indicative of future gains because you watch the stock market just go up and to the right and it just Mm -hmm. keeps going up and to the right over the long haul. So I'm preaching to the choir. I'm just saying it's a great episode. If I do say so myself, it's a great episode Mm -hmm. to kind of get you in the mindset of having a financial conversation, but I definitely suggest that. Um, And then, yeah. I would connect with, do you have a real estate agent in your hometown? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he, he's great. Um, something I 
am wondering at what point I should look into is like the rest of the team, the lawyer, accountant kind of thing. I've been kind of getting by so far. I don't know if there's like a economies of scale tipping point where it makes sense to look into that kind of service. Here's here's a framework to help you with that, right? So uh-huh. when, when and I'll use property management because you definitely have to outsource that since you um, are not there, but I'll use it as an example. Um, if I'm living in a town, let's say, let's say I'm making $50,000 a year and I have my first rental property, right? This is my position when I started house hacking. Um, hiring out the property management, let's say I get $2,000 in rent um, from that property, two units, making this up, right? And, and you know, hiring that out would cost me $200 at 10% for the pr- property manager. If that takes me four hours, um, if, it would takes, if it takes the property manager four hours to complete that work or me four hours to complete that work, I'm arbitraging my time. I'm saying my time is worth more than $50 an hour, but I only make $50,000 a year. So my right. time is worth $25 an hour. So there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a sliding scale, I think, that you have to kind of think about over the course of this journey where if you're making $120,000 a year and you're working 40 hours a week, your time is worth $60 an hour right? Um, it's probably worth a little less than that because I imagine you work a little bit more than 40 hours a week, you know, on average or whatever that is. So let's call it $50 mm-hmm. an hour with that. Um, okay, great. My time's worth $50 an hour. Is this, is outsourcing this task, am I going to be able to pay somebody else less than that, right? If, if you value your leisure time at the same rate that you, at anything close to what you get paid at, at work. Um, so that's a good framework to think about. And so with that, there's, you know, the right, the right answer. It depends, right? Right now, the answer might be I should do my taxes or, you know, probably not self-help too much on the legal side, um, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. but I, I should do my taxes to a certain extent, or I should be proactive and and take on what I can on the legal side with that kind of stuff safely um, with this kind of stuff and think about those things. But as my net worth and my income progress, I, will, I know that there will come uh, inflection points where I need to transition that off of my plate and onto um, a professionals, um, with that or someone okay. else with that. How's yeah, that? That's interesting. Cause I hadn't, I hadn't really, I'd thought about it more so in terms of, do I have enough properties for this to make sense rather than could I be doing something better with my time perspective? So that's good to, good way to think about it. Ooh. And I was just typing in a question to ask, is there any opportunity to generate more income? Can you work extra hours? Can you get a second job? And I'm not talking about like driving for DoorDash for $5. I'm talking about your main job. Is there an opportunity to work overtime and get paid for it or, you know, do any sort of side business that does generate some hefty income? Um, the, the field that I'm in, they're a little bit strict about what you can be doing outside of work. Um, and since I'm salaried, I don't get overtime necessarily. Something I was thinking about, which I don't know if you guys know much about, it would be those like small uh, crypto miners where you, you know, like the smaller ones, um, thinking the helium miner, you know, you plug it in. And since I'm in a city, there's, it's an internet of things connector. So there are many things that use internet near me. Um, that's the only thing I sort of have on the horizon besides, you know, just buying more rental properties. Uh, well, you live on the East coast. It's going to get cold at some point. Yuri from episode 236 uses his Bitcoin mining to heat his house. (laughs) I I remember I listened to that one. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know anything about Bitcoin or about mining at all. Um, I'm not the right person to ask. Scott, you can chime yeah, in my, here. My, my just instinctive reaction is that I'm skeptical that that will generate a meaningful amount of incremental income relative to what you make. You make 10 grand okay. a month um, plus bonus. Um, I would think, you know, you, you know, how, how can I increase that by 10% in order for it to be worthwhile as an endeavor to, to spend serious time on? Um, with that, you know, so, so unless you have like a very short term thing that you're trying to push over the, the edge there. So I, I, I would just be skeptical that there's an opportunity to make that much more, but if you can spend a few hours to generate 50 bucks more a month, that's 600 bucks. That could be a good use of time to set something, something like that up. Okay. Is that helpful? Yes. Again, um, sort of thinking about it relative to how I make my most money now. Yeah, it, it, you know, if I'm if I'm thinking about your trajectory based on what you presented so far over the next twelve years, I anticipate that your income is going to continue to increase from one hundred and twenty to let's call it one hundred and eighty, two hundred, maybe more. With that, does that seem in the ballpark? Like it's yeah, it's it's doable. Okay, great. And and you're going to be able to buy a property every two years on your current savings rate, which will steadily increase. Uh, in, in terms of, of that, and how, and, and it looks like you're maxing out multiple retirement accounts uh, with this. I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking twenty five thousand or so is going into these retirement accounts on an annualized basis. NHSA. Yes. Okay, great. So yeah, the, well, and that's something I wanted to ask you about too, actually, because so I'm, I'm maxing all of those out now. Um, is that something I should continue to do, given that I'm looking to, you know, go the non-traditional retirement route uh, sooner rather than later and also need a lot of cash now. And my company match is pretty um, pathetic. It's I think it's like 1.25% of 6%. It's and and it takes three years to vest. It's nothing um, I consider necessarily worth sticking around for at least, you know, I wouldn't necessarily stay the full three years if I had something better just because of that 1.25%. Um, is it worth looking into either decreasing the contributions or switching some from Roth to traditional um, to capture some of those? I think that would increase my take home to switch some to traditional. Uh, so, cause I wouldn't be paying taxes on it now. Um, or should I stay away from that? Just keep maxing out and figure something else out outside of the retirement accounts. This is the squidgy question because Scott and I both are, well, Scott's very firmly on the Roth IRA, a Roth 401k option. And I am coming over to the, the dark side, the light side of Roth IRA contributions or Roth, con Roth 401k contributions. Um, I keep going back to episode 200 with Kyle Maston saying he had a really great argument for why he feels the Roth option may go away in the future. The government mm -hmm. has been sending all of these stimulus checks to American citizens, and we're going to need to pay for that in some way. And it's a lot easier to remove the Roth option than it is to raise taxes on taxpaying citizens. So that is, if you're going to continue to contribute to Retirement accounts, I like the Roth option for you better than the traditional, but you also have a Roth IRA. See, this is this is where it's hard, Scott, because there's no like one right answer. Um, 
Yeah, I, your, your timeline is so long too that it it, it creates a lot of um, a lot of optionality and a lot of nuance with the, with 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 some mm. of these things. Twelve like twelve years being long in the context of like these, but what we're hearing from from a lot of folks with this. Mm-hmm. Um, here's one way to think about it. I'm trying to back into something 12 years from now. I save a thousand dollars a month uh, and I can max out those, those accounts in 12 years. It's conceivable that if I, if I put in $300,000, which is 25 times 12, um, that that will grow on average and be in the ballpark of 500 to $650,000 inside of my retirement accounts with that. Um, so that's that's what's going to happen. That that's the that's the that's the range that I would say you, you would be you want to plan and be more conservative and have a backup plan if you don't get there. But that's not mm-hmm. an unreasonable place to expect to kind of think that they're going to end up over the next uh, uh, twelve years inside of those accounts. So that's that's pretty good. That's an incremental six hundred, you know, let's call it five six five hundred thousand to six hundred fifty to what you currently have um, and the compounding okay. rate of that. So it's Let's call it three quarters of a million because your stuff that you have currently is going to grow and we're guessing at a whole bunch of assumptions to get there. Um, so that's great, right? At 40, um, that should carry you. You, should, you, mean, you, you, mean, you might be what, what a lot of people call coast fi. Uh, you've heard that term? Yes. Great. So you don't have to, so for those listening, that's when you don't have to retire, uh, contribute any more to your retirement accounts and they should be plenty at retirement age, but you still need to fund your current lifestyle in the meantime until you hit traditional retirement age. Um, so it's kind of like that where you can coast, you can just make uh, enough to do that. So that's the, the jargon there. So that, that's, that's what will happen most likely. Um, and if it doesn't happen, you can only just work a few more years or you might ag- ag- expand past that um, with all of this um, if you don't change anything about what you're doing. Now, if you retire at that point and you stop working, that's when if that money is in a traditional, like a 401k, Sorry, I'm going to take one more step back here because there's a lot of convoluted thinking that's leading me to where I'm at here with this. In isolation, if you want to build the most long-term wealth, right? I'm still on the Roth trade, right? Again, this is a art, not a science, but the assumption that I'm working with is that you are, what, 28? Is that right? Uh, 29. 29. Okay, you're 29. Um, You are earning a good income, but inflation is likely to happen over the next 30 years, Right. And taxes are likely to go up, not down um, mm-hmm. uh, 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 for, for a variety of reasons. And the most likely outcome is that you're, there's both a higher tax bracket and a lot of gains inside of this portfolio to realize with that. And so for me, the Roth is generally going to be a better option for long-term wealth. But if you are at 40 and all of that and you're, and you're retired and you stop earning income, it's possible you can do one of those backdoor Roth or the Roth. Con- mm-hmm. I'm sorry, not the backdoor Roth. The Roth conversion ladder and move that from the 401k and into a Roth IRA. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what that means, but again, we're, we're you know from a strategic lens. I'm just talking this through on the spot here and trying to think about think about this. But maybe one one reasonable takeaway from that monologue that I'm having with myself right now um, is. <laughs> Is is 
balance it a little bit more, right? Because yeah. because you may have that option. Like if you if you stop at 40 and you have a year with very low income or your rental properties all need a bunch of new new things that you can fully depreciate, you know, a bunch of rehabs or you uh, that you can fully depreciate or you buy a, a couple of new ones and have a big loss, that would be a great year to roll things over because if you have a loss, then everything up to that loss is not taxed, right? Um, from, from the rollover perspective with that. So it may be wise to put a little bit into the 401k if that truly is your plan to retire and you think your income is going to drop at least for a couple of years in that meantime. So how's that for a thought process on that? Is it anything helpful there? Well, I like it because it means I could switch some to traditional and get more cash in my bank account now without feeling bad about it necessarily. (laughs) Because I I would have a plan for it, you know? (laughs) So you're saying doing sort of a combination not just solely to get more cash in my bank account now, but with a plan, you know, with if five by 40 is really the goal and suddenly my income drops, that could be a feasible and responsible way to go about it. Yeah. If we're aligned on the the concept that the ultimate goal is to get all that money into a Roth. <laughs> um, then, yeah, yeah. then if that's the end goal, right? At, at some point, then this would be a way to do that. That would, you know, the, I, I'm not even thinking about the lens of getting you more cash now. That would be an incidental output of of this plan, um, mm-hmm. but it would be a result of the tax savings that we're that we're thinking through here with this. So you have to be really sure, not really sure, but just know that the trade off is that if you never have that that down year in income. Um, with this, that you're going to end up probably paying, you, you, if if you agree that taxes like to go up, inflation is likely to loom and all that kind of stuff, that you're probably going to pay more tax on the money you're putting into the 401k um, if you don't end up having a year or two of low income or or even a loss to, to make that transfer. Right. Our, so I know that, um, I heard that backdoor Roths were maybe on the chopping block, but conversions are different. Conversions are different. Backdoor is on the chopping block for people who make more than $400,000 a year or something like that, which is a really great problem to have. Um, And this is just proposed. And just like this is being proposed, they could down the road propose no more Roth conversions. So this is something to just keep in mind. But the fact that you're aware of this starting off is already putting you head and shoulders above the rest of the crowd. Um, I want to pose this in our Facebook group, which is found at facebook.com slash groups slash BP money and see if anybody else can kind of crowdsource some suggestions for you as well. Do you continue to contribute to your Roth 401k while maxing out your Roth IRA and your HSA? Do you take some of those Roth 401k contributions and put them into a traditional 401k, which will reduce your taxable income and therefore hopefully generate some income, some more cash now. Um, Scott was saying that he was he was not quite sure why your 9250 check is only 4500. I did a little bit of math, 9250 minus the 280, which is tax pre-tax for your HSA contribution, mm-hmm. leaves you with 8790. You take out the 1500 after tax to contribute to your um, Roth 401k and you're left with 7470 to pay taxes and all that stuff. So it, well, I'm sorry, you're paying taxes on the 8970. It just seems like 
in this scenario, the 4,500 might actually be where it's at. And isn't there something, Scott, after like 74,000 in income, then you start, they, they don't take FICA out anymore or something. This is, I'm like. No, no, this, this makes sense. I, I would, um, it's the, it's the Roth. Um, and I was thinking by month, I get, I get paid personally, um, twice monthly rather than every oh, other week. Yeah. And so there's yeah. another, there's, there's 26 instead of 24 paychecks. So that, that's, what's probably going on with that, where that was hurting my mental math. Ah, yes. Which okay. I love those three paycheck months. Those are also like mini bonuses throughout the year. Yeah. 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 The three paycheck month, you just go ahead and put all of that in your, in your retirement account, or I'm sorry, exactly. not in your retirement account, in your house fund account. Yeah, right. Um, I would continue to connect with the local hometown real estate agent and say, this is what I'm looking for. I am able to jump on this whenever you have this um whenever you have this option, you know, whenever this this these parameters pop up, I'm ready to jump on it. And then okay. be ready to jump on it. Um I would talk to a local East Coast agent and start getting an idea of what houses cost and what okay. sort of down payment you're going to need for that as well. Just as an idea, but I don't think you're ready to save up for that just yet. Um, would you house hack the local property or would you... So that is something that um, my partner and I are interested in conceptually. And I've I've tried using the same you know spreadsheet that I used to buy the first two rental properties to find a deal that would make sense around here. And it the amount of mortgage I would need would just not the, the rent would not offset um, even if you know after we move out and rent out both sides it. I haven't found a property that makes sense, but I've got, you know, a, a Zillow filter that sends me multifamilies every now and then. So we'll see if something comes up. But even a house hack that just offsets your costs slightly is is much better than or, or has a huge financial mm. upside over a place that um, has no offset to your mortgage payment with that. Like a Very true. So so just the fact that you're looking is awesome with that. Um, go ahead, Mindy. On the other hand, in some cases, renting just makes more sense. So I wouldn't jump into, you said your rent is $1,500. i am assuming since that split, that's $3,000 a month. If you're grabbing a mortgage that is, you know, $2,900 a month, that might be good. That might be not good. If you can find mm -hmm. something that's significantly less, that'd be great. If you can find a rental that's less, there are always yeah. going to be lower price rentals, but it's not going to be so nice. Yeah, we so we just moved into this place last weekend. Actually, it's oh. been a roller coaster, <laughs> um, but we're we finally we moved from an apartment building to you know sort of like a place where we at least have a front yard that we can go out and the the dog has a yard too. So it, we're definitely here until and if we buy, um, which I think is a good place to be because. Um, at least we sort of know what the um, comparison should be for a mortgage. You know, we'd probably buy something similar to this. So if it costs more to move to buy something similar than to this every month, then we'll just stick around and, and that's fine too. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. 
Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Saving for a down payment, a wedding, or just looking for extra money to invest? Monarch Money turns your budgeting woes into wins. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best budgeting app overall. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to manage your money like a pro. Add a partner or family member to your account for no extra cost, so combined finances become a breeze. Customize your budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions, and more. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash pockets for your extended 30-day free trial. Pretty good episode, right? While you were listening, you could have been getting paid rent with RentApp. Landlords love RentApp because it makes rent collection a breeze. RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit funds directly into your account. Setup is straightforward for renters. Landlords don't need to download anything. Both have peace of mind with a digital transaction history. Isn't it time you made landlording a little easier? RentApp, the best way to pay or collect rent. Learn more at rent.app slash landlord. That's rent.app slash landlord. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. So let, let's talk about um, your real estate portfolio and building that out, because that's the last leverage piece here with that. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> to buy a property, you're going to need 25K as a down payment, give or take. Is that right? Yeah, probably. What, what do you think a good emergency reserve is for you to feel comfortable with your life and your current properties before you buy the next one? Um, so I have five... Actually, this was one of my questions. I have 5,000 reserved for each 
build each property right now, um, and then 10 for my personal reserve. I, given our increase in rent, I need to up my personal reserve, um, my personal emergency fund. I'm sort of wondering by how much, because with inflation and everything, at some point, I imagine it's, it, it is less efficient to truly have that six months to a year when I do have, you know, the Roth IRA sitting around, if something truly catastrophic were to happen, um, you know, we have two incomes, I have the Roth emergency fund. Personally, I'm thinking maybe 15K for my personal emergency. Um, so would love your feedback on that. And then for each of the houses, I have 5K now, and I'm wondering at what point do I, if, if at any point, do I stop adding to each of those savings accounts and start rolling that extra um, I'm saving 20% of the rent right now for, for CapEx and vacancy and all of that. Um, at what point do I stop adding to those reserves and start rolling that money into, um, you know, buying the next one? This is awesome. I, I, here's how I would think about it with uh, a couple of rentals, right, is the first one, I think you want 15K or something like that because, you know, that's your whole nest egg with that. I don't think you need to add another 15 for, and I'm making this up, but this is, this is how I did it for mine, right? Um, yours, your yeah. profile, depending on your deferred maintenance, could be different with that. The second one, you don't need another 15K in that. You might need another seven to 10 to feel really comfortable. Then maybe it's five per property with it because what's the chance that they're all going to go wrong at the same time with that? The second is you need something for your personal life. Right. And that should be three to six months, depending on on your comfort level, maybe longer if you'd like to have a, a, a little bit more optionality. But in your case, you know, do you have these properties in LLCs? No. So they're, they're all in your name. Um, it, it, I think it might just make sense to say, what is that boiled up number? You know, 5K feels too light for a property, right? Because you might need more than that. Right. But. Yeah. 30,000 probably feels like plenty for your two properties in personal life with that, right? Like way more than enough okay. with that. And so I, I think you can, you can, in this case, maybe just bundle it all together um, to a certain extent. And then as your business grows, separate it back out and say, okay, the business across 10 properties, I want 60,000 um, in there. That's X amount of months mortgage and plenty to cover a roof replacement or whatever with that. Um, and I have, you know, I also ha can, can access HELOCs or whatever else, um, to make sure I don't have a cash flow issue with that. But how, how's that for a framing of, of the problem? Does that give you help, help in, in thinking about where to put the cash? Yeah, that is helpful and less burdensome too, on terms of the total amount of cash I need to be, uh, aiming for, for those pieces. Yeah. I, I want to highlight the risk. Yeah. Go ahead, Mindy. Yeah. I want to highlight what Scott just said. He said, depending on your, he said deferred maintenance, but what mm -hmm. he meant was just the condition of the homes in general. So I want you to note how old the big ticket items are in each of these properties, the roof, the HVAC, the appliances, the water heater, your roof is going to be about $15,000. And if it costs you 12, great, but that's something that you should be aiming for is saving $15,000. Are they both going to go at the same time? Most likely not. But if the houses are next door to each other and you have a hailstorm, maybe so. So make sure that you are, you know, covered on your insurance, but also make sure that you have 
yourself covered. Um, a water heater is $1,000. Can you come up with $1,000? Probably pretty easily to have a new one installed. Even if they both go out, you can cover that one pretty easily. HVAC is going to be between eight and $15,000. So having these big ticket items in your mind is going to be a lot more helpful coming up with like what sort of reserve I need to have. Is the HVAC system in both houses going to go at the same time? Well, if they're both 20 years old right now, you could be looking at a really hefty bill really soon. But if they're both brand new yesterday, that's less of a concern. So I really like that he highlighted that it, you know, your your emergency fund should be contingent on not only, you know, your financial level of risk, but also the condition of the home itself. Okay. And um, was the point about the LLC just like the, if it were in an LLC, I would want to keep it, you know, very separate, but since they're not, it's sort of okay to have a little fluidity between the two, um, personal and rental accounts. Well, if it's not, it's not an LLC, no one's going to be checking on that. So it's probably (laughs) a best practice to make sure that you're able to account for every dollar that's going through each of those properties. And Mm -hmm. one day you may wish to transfer them into an LLC um, at some point. So it would be good to kind of, you know, set up, set things up as a business. But in terms of just aggregating the cash, I don't think you need to leave cash in separate accounts for each one of those properties right now. I think it just complicates your position. And you can just say, I've got one pile and it's plenty big. Okay, great. Now I can now <laughs> I, now I can go out and save up for the next property with this, right? Right. <laughs> um, right. So that, that's that's more what I'm kind of thinking. It's just a simple. It's just a. a there's no wrong. There's no way or wrong answer. A lot of lots of people probably do it in different ways than what I just articulated. That's just one way that may work for you um, and simplify your thinking on this. Yeah, that makes sense because I also thinking about the amount of, and I'm sure plenty of people have this problem, and especially right now with inflation. But thinking about all this cash that I want to stockpile away. Um, any way that I can to make that more efficient would be great. Yeah. I mean, so you have one big pile, um, which, you know, you can certainly, you, you just keep expanding the size of the pile that you need um, for that. Right. I'm using the, the pile. Of, I don't know if this is a good analogy or not, but you're like, okay, great. Yeah. If, it, if it was 20, 25,000 in two years, it needs to be 50,000 for, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. And then a year following that, it needs to be, 60,000 to cover the wedding and all that kind of stuff. So that would be that would be one way to think about it from a cash perspective with that. Is you just say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to stick it I'm never going to go below 25 um with that. But whenever I'm above 25, I'm going to sweep that into my down payment fund or I'm just going to, you know, keep piling it up in in that account until I get to 50. Um, and then I'm going to use 25 of that for my down payment. I'm going to dip below temporarily to 20 and then I'm going to rebuild um get back to like that's just an easy way to think about your 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 cash position with this in one centralized place with that okay and and you're going to come in to so many things have changed or may change in the future with this if you change your allocation you're going to get some you're going to get some of that um back if you begin putting the money in your rentals into your business and they truly are cash flowing at that you're going to get another seven or eight thousand dollars per year from the rentals um that's going to flow into that account you might get a $20,000 bonus. You have two months of the year where you're going to get a three paycheck month that's going to flow in there. Um, so all right. of that is going to, I think all of that I think is cushion in the way that you're forecasting your cash position right now. That is probably not articulated in, in a, in your 
in your planning with that. And so I, I think you'll, right. you'll come up with that. You'll, you'll surprise yourself with how quickly you come up with the incremental 25 for that next real estate purchase based on that. And is there a different way that I mechanically should be saving for something like a wedding versus uh, next down payment in terms of account or what, where to put it, or even how, how much of the, you know, excess that I have each month should go towards each. So I am going to be raining on your parade and I don't mean to, but you're not engaged yet. So there isn't a wedding to save for right now, which might goose the conversation, which is great. Um, You don't have to have a big $75,000 wedding if you don't want to. Um, You could, I'm always on the, the, I was the last of my friends to get married. Literally everybody got married before me. It was this very tight timeline. It was wedding, 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 wedding. And then me. And every bride said, I spent all this time planning. And I got up in the morning and all of a sudden it was over and I don't remember anything (laughs) and I didn't get to talk to everybody and it was just this huge chaotic thing. So I did not do that. I said, I am going with my best friend, my husband's best friend, our immediate families. We're going to go get married and we're going to go have a party. And there were 17 of us. And it was very intimate and nice. And then we had a great big blowout party, but it didn't matter if anything went wrong during the great big blowout party because it wasn't my wedding day. And there were Mm. some issues with some of my friends and it was like a very stressful time. And I've been married for a thousand years. So I know this is a very different time. Scott just got married. It was lovely. Um, in the pandemic. Uh, but it was still lovely. It was it was online and uh, my girls love to watch it. But it, like, what kind of wedding do you really want to have? Right. Does it have to be a $75,000 wedding? Could you take that money and put it towards something else? And then you're not working for an extra 10 years to pay that off. But instead, you bought a rental house and now you can retire at 35. So yeah. I'm just throwing these out there. Well, and I think with the pandemic too, the expectations for weddings have gone down, which is helpful. You know, what, what guests expect to, to get and to experience. Oh, no, 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 no. This is your wedding. It's what <laughs> right. you want. It isn't what the guests expect. If they're expecting something that you're not going to give them, they don't have to come. Fair enough. Sorry. I, I, I agree with that, with that one. It's, it's kind of, it's what you want, right? And if that's what you want and you want to spend the money with that, then we'll, we'll figure out, we'll, we'll, uh, account for that in the the approach that we take with, with all those kind of stuff. I, I didn't hear $75,000 wedding. I heard $75,000 inclusive of engagement rings, wedding, and house down payment. Was that? Okay. Yeah. So kind of sliding scale for, you know, how much each of those would cost, but that's a guesstimate for, yeah, all, all of those things. Okay. Okay. Um, you're I, right, Scott. I don't think that changes too much about what we're what we're describing here, frankly, with this, because right now you have some student loans and a mortgage on your rental property and other investment opportunities, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, you're asking where should I store the money that I'm saving for the wedding? Well, you have four and a half, six, four, four and a half, five percent interest rate debt currently with that. Why not just continue paying that? Or in continuing with your current investment approach, um, in, in, instead of socking away the cash specifically for an event that, to Mindy's point, uh, isn't even scheduled yet. With that, right? So, right. so I wouldn't, I wouldn't think, of, I wouldn't worry about like locking it up in some sort of savings account with that because you're just going to be arbitraging okay. 
risk. Um, you're going to be getting 1% in a CD instead of 4.6% on your student loans or, or your rental mortgage. So in terms of the debt, is there, I don't know that it makes sense to pay off these mortgages more quickly, um, given the relatively low interest rate. Uh, so yeah, do, is there, I mean, also the student loan has an even lower interest rate right now at zero, so I'm not paying it, but uh, the only one that kind of stands out is the personal loan. Um, that's, I think it's like 5.8%. So I guess just go, does it ever make sense to pay off those mortgages early or at that point, do I start saving for the next one? Well, you, you, the question, I, so I'm, I'm answering a different question with that. You're asking a great oh. question with that, but I'm, I'm, an, I'm, I was talking about the, the question of what do you do with the 75 to hundred K that in cash that you want to save? I don't, I don't think you save it. I don't think you separate it out and place it somewhere else. I think you continue with your investing approach and then pull out the cash when needed um, to to go with this. Because if, if you, for example, just set that into a a bank account, you know, there's no reason why you'd put it in a bank account rather than paying off the personal loan. That's a much better example, right? You're, You're just paying off. You could, you almost certainly could get another personal loan at that interest rate right now. Mm -hmm. So if you pay it off, you're just now not accruing interest on that instead of, um, instead of having cash sitting in a bank account while you pay interest on that. So what, what I'm, what I'm trying to, to just articulate is there's, you have, you, you're probably your best use of the, of additional cash is on another rental property. I don't know. I'd have to okay. do the math, yeah. but there's probably a good risk adjusted return on continuing your current approach um, and moving towards that 10 rentals goal that will more or less get you past the five point with that. The second best use of cash is probably in the retirement accounts and investing that you're doing with that. The third best use of cash would be then paying down this debt. And the fourth best use of cash would be dumping it on top of the pile or creating a new pile um, to save up for these future expenses. That that would be how I think about it in the context. And there's an infinite number of other uses of cash that you could come up with if you got creative enough. But from what we've talked about, those seem like the four, the order I would... I would kind of approach them in. Okay. What do you think, Mindy? Yeah, no, I agree. And I can hear people saying, oh, but Scott, you said if it's between zero and 4%, don't pay it off early. And if it's between seven and nine, if it's seven and above, pay it off early. And if it's in that middle, don't pay it off or maybe pay it off. I want to, I want (laughs) to point out though, that you're saying rather than taking this money and saving it in an account, that's going to pay you 0.01% interest you're getting a better return by paying off the 5.8% loan and getting a better return by paying off the student loans. I wouldn't pay off the mortgage early. Um, you do have a 4.625% interest rate on your uh, lower mortgage. I would look into maybe refinancing that, see if you can get a rate and term refinance, um, see if there's any sort of cash out option that you can do with that at a lower interest rate to throw at the personal loan or the student loans, although that's going to be a 30-year that you're borrowing against. So maybe that's not, maybe a cash out isn't the best option, but like 4.625 in the the whole scheme of historical interest rates, that's a really low rate, but currently that's kind of a high rate. So I would look into maybe refinancing that. But yeah, I like what Scott's saying about don't sit there and grow the money at this tiny little rate when you're paying out at a higher rate. 
for this particular thing. Yeah. Mortgages I, don't count. I wouldn't pay the mortgage off early necessarily. That's that's I, 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 I would, there's a very few circumstances where that's the the right move, except for folks who want to get debt free with that. And that's their specific mm -hmm. goal. And they want to have 10 paid off rentals or five paid off rentals. That's a great goal um, with that. It's not, you know, mathematically going to get them as far necessarily or as quickly, but it is a perfectly reasonable approach. I'm, I'm simply saying rather than stockpiling a hoard of cash to pay for these items, that would be a theoretical better use <laughs> than doing that. Yeah. So it's an illustrative example of like, oh no, there's 10 other better things to do with that money than to stockpile it um, for the, the future wedding, I think. So when do I start saving for those things Because <laughs> the, it would take me a while to get you know that much cash, which is why I'm thinking you know this far in advance. I think I think like if you wanted to finance that wedding right now, right, you would have multiple sources of cash, including a HELOC or mortgage or whatever with, with those types of things with it, um, plus your $25,000 in current cash. So I don't think you'd have trouble financing anything less than a, a very lavish wedding um, <laughs> with your current financial position. What, what do you think? Is, it, okay. is that is that reasonable? Yeah. Yeah. I guess if I had to, I could go basically to zero to do it, but that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, well, you're saying, how do I get access to $75,000 in cash in three years? Well, there's no comfortable way to do that, right? What, what, right one way I'm going right. to have to stock, create a huge pile and sit on it for three years and then spend it. Um, the, the least bad way to do that would be, <laughs> I think, to invest and then borrow against those investments or liquidate some of those investments um, uh, to, to finance the event in, in, uh, the, at the time that you need it with that by increasing your access to credit and having a reasonable, you know, in the, in that, and again, let's say over the next year, right? We, we just said, you're going to save 12 grand from your regular mm -hmm. run rate. You're also going to have two additional paychecks. That's another nine grand. So that's 21. Then you get probably most years, because companies like to retain their employees, uh, get, get a 20% bonus. Um, so that's another 24 grand. It's called 18 after taxes with that. Um, then you've also got six grand coming in from the rentals, um, give or take ac across that, right? So that's 35 K that you're going to get access to after tax, maybe more if you begin, um, putting a little bit into the 401k plus a raise or two that might happen in between there. So that should be plenty of cash to finance most of these events on a ongoing basis with that, um, and I think that what had something articulated is that you're just you're 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 new to the fifty thousand yes. <laughs> dollar raise situation that just occurred for you with that. So how, how's that? Do you feel feel better with that with that particular answer than what yeah, I was saying before? I, I was just thinking that, like, you know, I think maybe it hasn't hit me that I make <laughs> more money now. <laughs> well, good. It shouldn't hit you. You should take all that and save it. But also, right. let's look at next year. You've been at the job for a couple of years. Do you have a praise folder? in your inbox when somebody sends you a note, hey, thank you so much, Louise, for this. This was really great. It was so helpful for you to do X, Y, Z for me. You really saved my team time, money, whatever. Great. That gets into the praise folder and other things go into the praise folder. Talk to your boss at your, I'm assuming there's some sort of 90 day review. Talk to them and say, hey, I want to have the opportunity to get the most raise possible in at my 12-month review, 
what do I need to do? And he's going to be like, oh, increase productivity by 78% and generate more revenue. And he's going to give you specific items to do. Put those into, first of all, get it in writing and put those into your praise folder as well. And keep that in, in your mind while you are going through this praise. Oh, this relates to this goal here. This relates to this goal here and just keep track of stuff because it's really great to go in at your 12-month review. Your boss calls you in and they're like, hey, what have you done? And you're like, ooh, um, stuff. Like it's hard <laughs> when you're put on the spot. But if you're constantly thinking about this, you go in and you're like, oh, at my 12-month review, look at all of these things. Wait, there's another page and another page and another page. And they're going to be like, wow, we really need to keep her. Or maybe they're jerks and you're like, you know what? I'm going to go someplace else. Look at all these great things I did at my last job. So (laughs) what are you laughing at, Scott? I'm just going back to to this. I think that's great advice for Mindy. I'm just like, I'm still (laughs) hung up on the wedding thing with this. And I was like, one more more key piece of advice for someone who just got married. Not key piece of advice, but just knowledge about how it works with that. Suppose that you desire to spend $50,000 on a wedding, right? The wedding venue and the, the people who are going to be taking that money from you are not going to just on faith let you kind of go through the course of the year, not paying them anything, and then collect it all at once at the end of the process with that. <laughs> so uh, that, that was not an option for, for me. I don't think it will be an option for you. It could be an option to pay all of it up front, but most people are not going to do that either because I would tolerate that. So you're going to be paying in installments over the course right. of the six months to a year leading up to the wedding anyways from a cash flow management perspective. Um, so sorry, uh, just going off on a tangent back to that. Um, and is it your girlfriend going to chip in? Yeah, yeah. There you go. So now you only need, what's 75? You Now you only need 37.50. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's for the down payment too. I'm not that crazy. <laughs> 75 is not just for the wedding. But the down payment, you can put down three and a half or 5%. Yeah. So but it's, I mean, a high cost of living it's city. not a 20%. Yeah. Even if you're putting down on a million dollar property, um, five percent is 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 fifty grand, right? So that's twenty five each for for that down payment. So, you know, three and a half percent would be still less. Is there a so thinking about that the loan amount? If we do buy um, here, we're probably looking at you know between seven fifty. To a million, it's not out of the question that that's how much a property would cost. Um, so the loan amount, any even the small interest rate, is going to increase that monthly payment. Um, is there sort of a wisdom in terms of percent of down payment? Should we be ideally looking at that twenty percent, or is that not necessary? Twenty um, percent isn't necessary. Just to buy a house, you get 20% as the threshold for not paying uh, private mortgage mm. insurance. So mm-hmm. if you get a conventional loan with PMI, then when you hit 20% of the purchase price in equity, you can request that they remove the PMI. And when you hit 22%, they have to remove it. And okay. if you get an, an FHA loan, you it comes with... It's more for people with maybe a lesser credit score or less of a down payment. It's 3.5% for an FHA loan. So I think it goes down to 580 credit scores. Um, The PMI stays for the life of the loan. You would have to refinance out of it. So if you have the option to get the conventional loan, that's a better option. Conventional can go as low as 3%. Um, You're 
the city that you're in, I don't think there's any USDA opportunities there, but that's, I mean, I'm just, I don't even think we need to bring that up. That has a 0% down payment option, but I don't think there's any USDA availability where you are. Let's say that I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's two years from now, three years from now, um, I'm just getting married and I'm thinking about a house at the $750,000 range and have the context of financial independence or building wealth in mind while buying that house. First, I'm thinking about a house hack, uh, but you already did that. So great. We'll check that box. Second, um, if I have $250,000, which is more cash than you anticipate having at that point, right? So I could put down a 25% down payment on that property. I still wouldn't. I would put down 5% most likely. Um, and then, I, you know, which would be 50 grand. And I take the other 200 grand and I'd invest it in an asset that I think was likely to uh, perform well with that. Now, you can say that's, that's, a, that's a huge risk, but I think putting all of that money into the primary residence is an even bigger risk than mm. that, right? So it's inherently risky to purchase a million dollar property with, you know, you, you know in, in essentially any circumstance, you know, until your income is, is above certain huge levels with that. But if I'm going to do it, I think that putting all of the eggs in that basket makes less sense than continuing to diversify the position with that. That's that's my take on the on that. What do you think, Mindy? I think you're right. That's exactly what I did um, with my property. As soon as I could pull out as much cash as I could, I did. Uh, I needed to borrow to buy this property, but then I wanted to cash out. To I had to borrow from my 401k and random other things. Um, I agree with what Scott's saying that. I mean, and PMI doesn't have to be a huge amount at that level. It might be you know, one or $200 a month, but what would you have to do? What would you have to sell to come up with the 20% down? How long would you have to wait to come up with the 20% down? So I, some people just automatically dismiss, oh, PMI, I'm never going to pay that. I'm just going to save 20%. Talk to a lender and see what PMI would be for you in your specific situation, but it doesn't does, always have does to be a Does the PMI move? Like, is it, you have to pay a higher amount of PMI um, in absolute terms, if I put down 3% versus 10% versus 15% versus 20%, I know that if I, when I, when I bought a property, I paid MIP, I had a FHA loan on that with my first house act. Uh, that was a, uh, that it all fell off at once, once I got to a certain equity level or refinanced the property, but there, there was no middle ground. It just, it never like diminished as I moved towards that equity threshold. So to, if, Sorry, go ahead, Mindy. I think it's when you buy. If you put down 3%, your PMI is going to be more than if you put down 10%. But once you get to 10%, it doesn't drop. It's PMI, I believe, is the same until you refinance. We should get an, a lender on here to talk about all the ins and outs of mortgages. Yeah, so th but that tells me that it's likely. It depends on the movement between 3% and 5% and 10%. But it's likely that there's no point in aggressively prepaying or attempting to, you know, just put put down the, the lowest amount on that because the, the difference probably is not going to be that huge between those different down payment amounts, and then it doesn't change at all until it drops off entirely when you hit the equity mm. threshold or refinance. So great, what that says is the the reward for paying off that MIP early or getting out of it is not very large until you're very close. Like it makes sense to spend the last five grand, I bring the last mm -hmm. five grand in cash to pay off, to get out of MIP 
uh, you know, if you, if you think you're going to sit there for a while, at least, but it doesn't make sense to bring 150 to pay out to, to, to get out of the MIP. Um, okay. With that. So that, that would be the framework I would use I, or my bias towards it. I have to think about it and, and, and probably get a, a mortgage lender, but does that help answer your, your thoughts about what you need for a down payment, this discussion? Yes, it helps my thoughts and it helps the amount that I need. So thank you. <laughs> I feel like the theme is I might need a little less cash than I think I, than I thought originally. So, uh, rental properties are closer on the horizon than I thought. Yeah. And and I think there'll be a source of cash, right? And you can borrow against Mm -hmm. some of them, um, if if you really do need it. But I think, I think you'll find you're able to, in your current position, if you don't change in that expense front in general, you're going to be able to cash flow these events pretty handily if things go even close to well over the next two, three years. Um, speaking of the refinance, Mindy, you mentioned refinancing um, the one property. Two questions. First, what would be the best way to go about searching? Um, I, I read the uh, I've read many of the bigger podcasts books, but uh, I I don't think I've done a very good job of searching around uh, for interest rates. And I was wondering what you think would be the best way to go about that. Um, and second, which kind of goes with that, it's a lower value home. So it's a pretty small loan, which might um, have been my barrier when I first looked. I'm not remembering, but um, that's something to think about. Yeah, I was going to bring that up because it's such a low value loan. Most lenders don't want to loan under $50,000. Mm-hmm. So look in, if this house is worth $55,000, it's not the only house in town worth $55,000. There's a lot of other uh, more uh, properties around that same value. So lenders locally are going to most likely have a loan option for the lower amount, as opposed to a big national lender who's like, no, we don't do anything less than 75. They're not the right person for you. So I would first look at all the banks in town, the local banks, not your Chase Bank or Citibank or any of those big ones, but like the local credit unions, the local banks. See if there's a mortgage broker locally who you can talk to and see what they've got, what options they've got, because there are people making loans less than $50,000 when the cost of the house is less than $50,000. But I think the best bet is locally. Yeah. Okay. And I want to chime in on on this as a, you know, you, you've already got two properties in this town and it sounds like you're in- intentional about buying more, but you you need, you really need to buy more for this strategy to work because if yeah. you just had that one property, it's an annoyance. It's It's so irrelevant to your overall financial position inside of the next 10 years that it's not, it's not a, it's not a powerful mover. 10 of them, a portfolio of 10 is a, a valuable, um, uh, uh, endeavor with that and, and, and can, can add, add net worth to you in, in, in a meaningful way. But, um, just keep that in mind. If you ever want to transition out of this, I would, I would consider selling these properties if you're not intentional about building a portfolio in that town, um, for some time is, I'm nowhere near this and I likely won't reach it, but is there anything to think about in terms of diversifying location or um, when when might that kick in? Okay. So about to buy a million dollar house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Once my portfolio is a million dollars, maybe think. If you had ties in another city, let's say that you're in, 
one city and then your girlfriend has ties to another city that's inexpensive. That could be an option, but just randomly choosing a bunch of different cities and I've got one here and two over here and one over there and three over there. You have a property manager here and here and here and here and here. And when I am a property manager and I am managing your one property in this town versus Scott's 17 and Scott's property has a problem, I'm going to be like, oh, Scott is 17 times more valuable to me than Louise is times all these random places around here. Plus finding a good property manager is so hard. I would say, unless you have a real reason to be someplace else, focusing on the same city over and over again, as long as it's providing good cash flow and the numbers are working, would be your best option. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If If you believe in the prospects of the town and do your homework on the cash flow potential of these properties, um, and feel like it is as reasonable a place to invest as anywhere else in the country, and you have that advantage of it being your hometown with it, that all stacks up really powerfully in that. If some of those items are not true, that completely changes things and would make the diversification uh, much more appealing with that or moving to a different town entirely where you do feel like you have those advantage. But if you believe in the prospects to a reasonable degree and you think the numbers are good and you've got the hometown advantage I, I don't, I agree with Mindy. I think, I think you just keep doubling down there. Okay. Good yeah. And one last thing I, I didn't think of this when we were talking about refinancing the current mortgage, call up the lender that holds the mortgage right now and ask them if they can do a rate and term refi, because okay. they would rather make a little bit of money than no money when you take their mortgage away. So if you can go from 4.6 to like, I don't know what mortgages are right now, 3.8, that's better. And then they're still making some money. And does that kind of refi not require, like, am I not closing again? Am I saving on those or do I have to pay all that again? Sometimes it's a real easy streamlined process and sometimes it's not. I I miss, why are are we refinancing in the first place? What's what's the- Because it's 4.625 and I think lending right now is much less. I think, okay, fair enough. I think she's asking a good question though about whether the economics of refinancing that loan will pay off because it's so small. Yes, mm. for sure. You don't want to pay $10,000 to refinance this loan. Um, that is that is definitely, and, and this goes for any refinance. And this is, I'm glad you brought that up, Scott, because this is one of those things that's in the back of your mind. But if you don't say it, maybe somebody else doesn't quite have that same uh, frame of reference. But yeah, if you can spend, let's say $1,000 to refinance this loan and it's going to pay itself off in a year and you plan on having this loan for a very long time, that's a great deal. If it's going to cost you $10,000 to refinance this loan and it's going to take you 15 years to pay it off, don't refinance. That's not a good choice. Um, so definitely run the numbers and make sure that it's a, a good idea to finance refinance. But if you can, I would do it. I'm wondering something else here with this, which is if you're going to, are you going to, if, if these properties are going to be with 50 to a hundred thousand dollars, you might find that a lender is going to be more comfortable just giving you one portfolio loan that you can up or downsize based on the size of the portfolio. So I would get into some more because of the the value of these properties and the fact that they're all separate, you might be a good candidate for someone to use a portfolio loan earlier than somebody, you know, than, than a lot of other folks who probably are better better off using conventional loans to finance these okay. properties for the first 10. So that'd be something that'd be something worth investigating. Um and that would that would and that would change your cash needs dramatically as well because they might say 
Your properties mm-hmm. are valued at 150 grand and we're willing to loan at 75% of that. And right now you've got two loans that are, you know, at 60%. So that's 15 grand you could get from these guys in cash out. Um, and then you add that to your 10, you buy another property and you just keep rolling that. Um, that might be a good structure for you. And I bet you that there, you have, a, you have good odds of finding a bank willing to do that. Uh, some, some, you know, if you, especially if you take Mindy's advice and go to the, the local lenders with that. Um, I would do a lot of homework before that, uh, make sure there's no gotchas <laughs> or, or, or funkiness in that. You want a 30-year a thirty year am if you can get it or a long amortization. You don't want these balloons um, and all that kind of stuff. But you may find like there's other other advantages at four point six, which is already a high interest rate. But your current interest rate, you might be able to get a thirty year amortization, and they might let you put the properties into an LLC um, on that. Mm-hmm. So that would be a big advantage early on um, with this kind of stuff. Just that much less risk. So something to think about um, when you're looking for financing um, on okay. that. Is do you know is that something that could be available at as low as two properties or I guess maybe it's bank to bank. So a portfolio loan is kind of like the banks write their own rules because they're keeping it in-house as part of their investment portfolio. So they don't have to conform to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, underwriting laws. They can kind of make it up as they go. So if they want to do two properties, they can because it's their own thing. Okay. I I bet you that the worst case scenarios are going to say not yet. When you get to this level mm-hmm. of volume, we're going to start doing that. Um, they might say, because you intend to buy another one, we'd love to get your business in locked in early. Um, but that would be, um, yeah, I think that's a good risk. And if they say no, then just keep going with plan A. Um, so I think that's that's a, that's, a, that's a really potentially good option for you to investigate. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited about all these options you have. I'm going to send you away with the note that I want to talk to you in six months and see where you are in six months. Sounds good. I would love to. Okay. Well, this was awesome. Louise, thank you so much for sharing your story and your finances and your the intricacies of all the, the different options that you have. You are doing a great job. Scott, we... St- we stink at saying what a great job our guests are doing. You're you're doing a great job. You just want to have more, and that's great. I think that 40 is going to – I think 35 is going to come, and you're going to be like, wow, I don't have to work anymore. <laughs> fingers but, crossed. Fingers I mean, crossed. not fingers crossed. Actionable plan and make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, I, I completely agree. You're doing, you're doing so many things right. This is going great. And, um, you know, like a couple of other stories we've had recently, I think you're just like – Oh wow! I'm doing really well right now. <laughs> and, yeah. Oh my gosh, my position has transformed dramatically in the months preceding this this talk. Um, that's a good problem. So take advantage of it. Keep those expenses low, and and I think I, I hope we gave you some things to think about that will be helpful mm-hmm. with with uh, the three goals you mentioned. Absolutely, I think um, I got some really good guidance, and also perspective on, you know, my current, uh, status. I, I don't know that I had been, you know, fully realizing, um, the potential that I have over the next year. So I appreciate you giving me the lens to look at that. And then also some things I can sort of tweak and pivot. So definitely look forward to that six month talk. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I will send you a note in, uh, five and a half months to invite you back on. Wonderful. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Louise. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. That was Louise. And I love 
her future and her horizons. Scott, what did you think of her show? I I think she has some interesting financial decisions to contemplate. (laughs) I think so too. I think she has, (laughs) I think she has a lot of great options and now it's just which fantastic option do I choose? I am super looking forward to checking back in with her in about five or six months. Yeah. I love how that, that joke now makes you laugh multiple times uh, with that. (laughs) No, I, I, look, I, I think that that's like, look, what I thought was awesome about the show is she has clear command over her expenses. She is obviously intentionally building her wealth. I, I can't imagine that wasn't that was a uh, total non-factor in her decision to change jobs. She's increased her income. She's got the two rental properties. She's got the the, the retirement accounts. She is rolling on all cylinders in terms of getting the, the wealth snowball going. And she just hasn't quite figured out. Like realize that, yeah, that, that what that means in terms of the cash that is going to come into her life or the options that she has. And now we're moving into a world that's much more art than um, science, right? Um, that's much more, I'm going to guess at long-term tax rates for the government with this. I'm going to guess at whether this market's going to do better than that market. I'm going to guess at what the future expense of a wedding might be and the sources of cash that I can use to, to get that. And I, I think it was a really powerful discussion to kind of go through those options, but also frame it against the backdrop of, no, you're not saving $1,000 a month. You're saving $3,000 a month, most likely. It's going to come in increments and buckets like like it always does or like it often does for people with multiple streams of income um, and who are, are finding their positions advancing quite rapidly. Um, but that's that's the the reality with that. And and how do you play the game that with the rules that she outlined um, want to have this much cash available for these events in my future life, a real estate portfolio and a, a uh, retirement portfolio. How do you play the games to the best of, my, the best of your ability? Well, at that point, you have, to, you have to be willing to play to win, but not to ruin. And I, I, think, I think it was a great discussion and we, we kind of got there today. Yeah, I, no, I completely agree, Scott. Um, I, like I said in the beginning, I'm so excited for her horizon. I think that, you know, Going through this, oh, I have to save this much money. I'm only saving this much money. I'm only doing this or I need to do more. And having somebody look at it from a a 50-foot lens is the whole point of this episode. The whole point of this show is to look at it from a different pair of glasses and see what we can see that you can't. And I think we saw a lot of things. And, you know, at the end, she's like, ooh, maybe I, maybe I am doing okay. Um I have one request from our listeners. We did talk about her current retirement contribution. She has a 401k, a Roth 401k option, Roth IRA, HSA. We would love it if you would go into our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash BP money and answer what you would do. Give her advice on how you think she should allocate those contributions. Um, maybe it's just continuing what she's doing, but you know all the different options and the reasons behind it can be very helpful for her to look at and say, oh, I really like this one best. I'm going to take this advice. Okay, Scott, should we get out of here? Let's do it. From episode 248 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, he is Scott Trench and I am Indy Jensen saying we've got to disappear, dear. There's 
a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month, four kitchens and bathrooms you can renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can afford? Which market and which deal is best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions, all to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devtha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. That's biggerpockets.com slash F-O-U-R. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.